922. Fear, fast, and first. This is News Talk K57. <laughs> Merry Christmas! Join Manielu for breakfast with Santa in your pajamas. Relax and enjoy an indulgent and delicious breakfast buffet, festive family activities, live performances, and take a picture with the big man himself, Santa. On Saturday, December 7th at the Outrigger Guam Beach Resort. Doors open at 8.30 and breakfast starts at 9. $40 for adults and $20 for children 3 to 12 years old. Get your tickets at GPO, Aganya Harmon, and Gigo Foodies and on Online at eventbrite.com. Fridays won't know what hit it. There's a new era of WWE SmackDown on Fox. Featuring your favorite WWE superstars all ready to put the smack back in SmackDown. Catch the Queen Charlotte Flair, the big dog Roman Reigns, and me, Becky Lynch, the man. Friday Night SmackDown on Fox. WWE SmackDown, every Saturday at 1 p.m., only on Fox 6, Guam, and Saipan. Taking you back in time with the Ohio players, I believe. Eight minutes after seven, welcome back to Man, Land, and Sea. News of Guam and our island environment brought to you by the Guam Coastal Management Program and the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. Thank you for sponsoring the show. And um, we were talking about, we had a caller right before the news talking about this uh, spring or what was it? Alamogosa Spring, Santa Rita Spring, Bonia Yeah, spring. yeah. And yeah. Dr. Jensen, please. Yeah, these these are springs that form at the contact where the limestone rests on top of much less permeable volcanic rock. Uh, you think of the limestone, the Alephan limestone that forms the ridge from Mount Alephan to Mount Lam Lam is a big sponge that's sitting on a pediment of concrete. Uh, and the water comes down there, hits the concrete, and it's going to leak out the sides. Mm -hmm. And... Um, those are excellent springs. The Almagosa Spring feeds the Navy's Fenna water system. Santa Rita Spring on the other side was, has a little impoundment that was built by the Navy engineers back in 1929. And, and actually archaeological evidence shows people were using the spring in its natural state for centuries before that. So it's, it's a great water source. And in fact, uh, we've uh, got a project uh, going for GWA to to, oh, I've got a student studying that, and we're going to suggest some a rehabilitation that, that may even uh, uh, double the amount of water that they're collecting from it. 
It's great because it's uh, it qualifies as groundwater, so you don't have to chlorinate it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and is it drinkable? Right, right. You can drink it right out of the. Wow. Yeah. It's like a lemon spring. Yeah, lemon spring. Wow. Yeah, those that. are those, those are great. I assets. think I want to build a house near there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get off the grid of GWA. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a good good question. The caller called in, and uh, you know we're more than happy to answer. Um, any questions you may have. Uh, we got Dr. Jensen, Dr. Launders, and um, General Manager of the Guam Solid Waste Authority, Mr. Larry Gass in the studio. You got any questions, comments, give us a call, 477-5757. During the break, we were talking about, and it just came up, you know, we didn't plan on it, but uh, incinerators. Only to find out, and thank you to my guest there, I, I always looked at incinerators, tying it in with power generation, but uh, Dr. Landers brought up the fact that, no, it can be just strictly incinerator, and what that would do is just reduce the amount of uh, waste that we have. Burn it. it. It does, it's volume reduction. It is a way to decrease the amount that's there. Yeah. Um, you know, some people complain that, you know, you'd be putting more CO2 into the air, but... Mm -hmm. It's just at a quicker rate because as it's decomposing in a landfill, it's well, still even producing even with methane an, and But even with an incinerator, wouldn't you have, you know, the stack, wouldn't it have filters or something to that effect? It would have filters, but it's, you know, sequestering the CO2 out of an incineration project is a little bit harder than pulling out particulates or uh, sulfur or things like that. Uh -huh. um, the, the good thing about straight incineration or from a waste to, to power facility is if you have technology that improves in the future, it could be used as, the, the ash can actually be used as additives in concrete and mm. other building materials so that are done. Reusable, uh, huh? It can be reusable and that would reduce the amount going into the landfill and the space needed for a landfill by even more. Wow. <laughs> Very, you know, recycling a circular uh, economy. That's what it's, what it's all about. And that's what we're leading towards, sustainability. Mm -hmm. And stuff like this, ideas, ideas like these that come out of uh, talks like this, it's it's really something. And again, you know, I encourage uh, you to listeners out there, you got an idea, you got something on your mind, give us a call. Let us know what you're thinking about. Um, uh, again, I'm reaching out to the uh, PUC and uh, Guam Power Authority. It's in your plan. It's uh, you, you agree to it that you're going to go renewable, what is it, 100% uh, by 2045 to something to that effect. And the idea that Larry has, and I agree, I think, you know, we don't have a whole bunch of land in Guam. We're just 212 square miles. Utilize that, how many acres was it? 50? Yeah. About 50 acres. You can put a whole bunch of solar panels, have a solar farm out there. And the property already belongs to... What, the government? It already belongs to the government. So how much do you think we're going to pay for that to use the land? Possibly nothing. Well, <laughs> like Larry was saying, uh, incineration can extend the lifetime of your landfill by there you go. 10. Yes. And it makes a lot of sense for it. Uh, it really I'm, does. I'm an advocate of incineration. When, when you think about the fact that, you know, after its lifespan is, is done, we're going to have to, if we don't go that route or think outside the box, we're going to have to, what, go out in the barn and borrow 
30, 40 million more to we're dig gonna, another hole in the ground. We're going to have lots of capped landfills uh, sitting <laughs> yeah. on the island by 2080. <laughs> and that's one of the things I've always in the past run into is convincing government officials mm -hmm. that you have to be looking 40 to 50 years into the future as to where your next landfill is going to be. Right. Because if you don't already have that space picked out and bought 40 mm -hmm. or 50 years before it's done, somebody's going to put housing development there, somebody's going to put a school there, somebody's going to put something that will make placing a landfill there a not appropriate thing to do. Mm -hmm. So you have to think that far in the future. I, I know this yeah. is before your time, but the legend landfill area, or you might know, I don't know. I'm going to ask you, how much did it cost to obtain that property? I don't really know, but what I, I, I what I, I under, know what I understand, it cost a pretty penny, <laughs> a, a large amount of money up front, and then there was a large tax uh, tax break. credits that were yeah. given on top of that. Yeah, uh, after uh, they were sued. Yeah, well, yeah, we, 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 there we you went go. through a lot of agony to to find a, a place that yeah. everybody could agree on. And of course that there's that whole thing, not in my backyard, yep. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Where are we going to put it? Cocos Island? <laughs> 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 I don't know, but again, I am definitely uh, I definitely like the idea of an incinerator just for the reduction of waste and or uh, power incineration. I, you know, again, technology has gotten to the point now and it's getting better as the days go by, the years go by. That you know the the argument about uh, well how about the contaminants coming out of the uh, power incinerators you know I said no nah, it's probably going to be cleaner than what you're getting at right now out of uh, the PD power plants uh, again uh, the uh, Guam Power Authority already signed the contract and it's going to cost people of Guam you know 25 years or so upwards of two billion dollars so again uh, I'm not very uh, uh, well, it's, I can't do anything about it. Can you take back the contract? <laughs> can you take it back, Aspen, uh, South Korea? Can you take back the contract and uh, we'll think about it now? <laughs> I don't think so. Anyway, gentlemen, uh, 16 minutes after 7, what else you got in your mind? Anything else, John? <laughs> or what, Missy, let me ask you a question. Well, That'll be even well, better. I was thinking that, you know, uh, on this topic of incinerators, uh -huh. I think um, I, I'm an advocate of so that I. because I think uh, it's going to be difficult to find new sites, and it takes the pressure off of the water resources to have a reliable place that you can put a reduced waste stream into, and um, you know because we'll 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 always have to truck the stuff down south because you don't want to put a landfill over the aquifer uh, and but we're going to run out of places to put them so um. and, and that's the whole thing you recycling you're you're trying to reduce or reuse or repurpose yes products because you look at them as a resource land is a very important resource particularly on an island if yeah. you run out of land you're going to have no more growth. Your economy is going to directly become stagnant. Everything is dependent on being able to grow modestly 
on an island. Mm -hmm. And the more land you take up with whatever it is that you're you're using, mm -hmm. make it be something that's productive. A landfill, once it's full, is no longer productive. It's, yeah, it's you can. land you can't build on anymore. Yeah, there you go. And Larry, do you have any um, inside knowledge on just the incineration, incineration, reduction of waste? Are you familiar with any of those facilities in the mainland? Most of them are not built anymore. Uh, originally, back in the 50s, 60s, even into the early 70s, most of the waste in a lot of places went to just straight incinerators, which generally was a building that had four burners in each corner. All the waste went into the burners, the ash went on the floor, they came in at night, picked it all up, carried yeah. it away, and, and then landfilled it. Yeah, that, that was basically my question, in the incinerator part, not the power production right. part. But, because again, it, it's an option, it's something, it's an option that um, here in Guam we should look at, you know, again. Well, what, one, of, one of the reasons that everybody moved away from straight incineration to waste to energy mm -hmm. is because the permitting process is one of the most expensive parts other than building your facility. It is more expensive than building your facilities uh, for just an incinerator. Hmm. So if you're going to go through the permitting process, which is very expensive just to burn it, it's easier to throw a few more dollars at it and go through the power production process also. Hmm. And um, you know, years ago before uh, EPA got involved or was even in existence. That's why all the local towns, counties, everywhere throughout the states had small incinerators that they burned their garbage in because there wasn't that permitting process, there wasn't those regulations in place that made it very restrictive to do it. That's when everything started moving to municipal landfills that would handle several different cities or and or counties and even to regional landfills that would handle entire portions of the state and maybe multiple states uh, because it's easier to get that one large thing permitted than 25 smaller ones and mm. that's why things have kind of changed to the way that they have. Hmm. Something to think about, don't you think? 20 minutes after 7, again, uh, 477 is our number, 5757, Newstalk K57, Man, Land and Sea. You got something you want to talk about? You got a comment or a question for our guest? By all means, I encourage you, give us a call. Got some great questions from, uh, as the uh, gentleman called in earlier about that spring. What's Alagueta? Almagosa Spring. Almagosa. <laughs> Santa Rita Spring, Bruno Spring. And, I, and little did I know, you can actually drink the water straight from the from the spring. Wow. That, I think that's very, very hard to find. Yeah. Well, that, that's why GWA is interested in rehabilitating that and using it as a uh, source. Um, I can see why. I can definitely see why. No chlorine needed. <laughs> yeah, there are, it, it's actually in use now. It's just that that old system that was built in 1929 wasn't built to capture the entire flow out of it. It was just to meet the local need at the time. There's an eight-inch pipe that's shoved into a spot that's actually um, above the the um, what we call the aquaclude the layer that the water collects on. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not very efficient. But, you know, they weren't thinking of efficiency and they didn't have the knowledge of, of what was there. But, uh, 
Yeah, the, when you have a spring like that, you really should develop it to the max and get the maximum use out of it. And, and that's what uh, what we're trying to do now. Partic particularly when you don't have a lot of downstream uses. Living on an island, all that fresh water's ending up in the sea. Mm -hmm. And if you can utilize that fresh water for a purpose, you know, back in the States, you may have 500 miles that that spring will trickle through and and go through different areas and support wetlands, support all kinds mm -hmm. of things. You don't have that much on an island. You, you've got a high elevation going to sea level and that water would be moving away quickly from you. Mm. Mm. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I had a question. I, you know, we all hear about the Fenna Lake. Yeah, it's uh, run by the military, right? Does that have a liner? Or is it just water on top of the ground? No, it, it's just a, a classic artificial reservoir where they put a dam across the the, the river mm -hmm. and back the water up so you have a reservoir that has sufficient draft that you can extract water from it. Mm. It has to be, since it's surface water, it has to be treated. Um, but they treat it and it's uh, it's a nice source of water. Yeah, well, they they definitely use it. <laughs> that's yeah. for sure. And <clears throat> so it's still under uh, military uh, jurisdiction. Yes, it's, in, it's inside the naval magazine, so it's 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 well protected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine uh, the magazine. No, there's no land use issues up there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was surprised I got access. I, as you recall, John, I used to do a TV show, Man, right. Land, and Sea. Yeah. I actually did a show in the Navy magazine. <laughs> and here's a funny story because we're coming in, you know, we, of course we had to get uh, the proper <clears throat> clearances, but one of my cameramen's with me and he said, what's your name, sir? My name is Xing P. Wang. <laughs> it's like, uh oh, I hope that don't, <laughs> you know, start any alarm bells going off. <laughs> you know, they didn't know who he was. I said, well, he's the cameraman. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. But uh, anyway, Man, Land, and Sea goes back uh, many, many years. Uh, I decided to call this environmental show. Same thing. So mm -hmm. here we are, Man, Land, and Sea, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. It's an environmental talk show, and uh, I was really happy to do that back then. And uh, John was one of my uh, guests on the show. We did a show with him as well, and we did a show with a bunch of other people. And well, hopefully, hopefully, we'll see what we can do about reviving that TV show. It's a really good show. Twenty-four minutes after seven, uh, gentlemen. Anything else uh, you might want to elaborate on? No, you're talking about. And I, I've been on Guam long enough. I remember before 9/11, mm -hmm. you could go to the canoe house, take the boats out, and they had catfish contests. Mm. You could go out. The kids could go out. And I guess the Boy Scouts who used to go out, but they go out and it's filled with giant catfish in there. So They're up to now. Yeah, probably still there, but now they closed it off. You hardly can do anything. Wow, that's a shame. We should talk to the military. You want to have a better relationship with the community? <laughs> yeah, let me see if I asked all my questions. What do the models show? You're working with different models in regards to this uh, water situation in the future, 100 years from now, 80 years from now? Or is that a well, question as, as for Well, Mark was saying, the, these were scenarios that were done by a, a team centered at the uh, University of Hawaii. Um, but they're, uh, they're hypothetical scenarios. They're not really 
predictions in the in terms of a, uh, with the status of a forecast or something like that. I'm getting outside of my field, so I'll defer to Mark. To yeah, they, there's several ways. Well, two ways of doing it. You can do it purely statistically, like when it's sun's out, it's not raining. It's cloudy, it's raining. Mm -hmm. so you can relate that. The more cloudy it gets, maybe it's more rain. So they just look at things in a model, some variables, and statistically try to say what it's going to be. Or you can run a model like an actual weather forecast model and just change the carbon dioxide in it, take it offline so it's not predicting tomorrow's weather, just let it run for a thousand years of simulation and see what happens. Ah. See how much it rains, see how many typhoons form. We hear about it all the time, models, you know, model forecast for the typhoon. And yeah. You know, most of your people out there, like myself, and what does exactly that mean? You know, so mm -hmm. you just well, put it's it... A simulation on a computer with... They need supercomputers to do it because it's... It, it's amazing how much data has to do and we crunch through all the equations governing the motion mm. and the rain and the snow and the chemicals and whatever. And it predicts the weather reasonably well. It, in fact, think of the typhoon track predictions. Mm -hmm. They've gotten very good. The five-day predictions now, or even the three days, are as good as the 24 hours used to be. They're getting really good. I mean, there's a fundamental limit sooner or later, but almost, you don't even have to think about it. When the, they say a typhoon is such and such a place, and it's going to go north of Saipan, mm -hmm. or south of Guam, mm -hmm. or near Guam. Mm -hmm. Even at a five-day outlook, it's probably going to make that cut pretty good. They're that good. Well, that's because they're feeding real-time data well, from real data and satellites and, and sensors. Yes, yeah, lots of real data now, the satellites, all kinds of stuff. So they're good. At, they're getting really good at predicting weather. Even snowstorms in New England, remember? Oh, there's going to be a snowstorm next Tuesday, you know, with gale force winds and an ice storm uh -huh. on the coast. And it usually pans out pretty closely. They don't mm. make big busts anymore. They can still, but... So the bright idea was, well, let's just take these offline. We'll just run them over here on the side, and we're going to change something. We'll change the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Just mm. double it. And let it run for a thousand years of simulation. Wow. And then take it back over here and look at the maps. What did it do? What was the average temperature in New York? How many typhoons formed over here? They make all these counts and things. And then the problem is... For Guam, the, those kind of models are too coarse. You, Guam isn't. Guam might have one dot on it. You can't represent. Is it going to rain more in Tumon and this <laughs> and again? You, you, not possible. So the way yeah. they actually do it is they they block it out. They take those big climate models, make a big square that goes north to Saipan, out east to Guam, around there, and that's a boundary condition. Then they run a fine scale model that can represent like a cloud on Guam. Mm -hmm. Very fine scale, whether it's going to be warmer in Tumon or wetter in Anderson or wetter in the mountains. And they run that with the boundary conditions of the climate models to look at what happens. And even at that, it's, they do it, but it's still almost like the, the idea that there's going to be less rain in the rainy season. Well, it's not, it is rocket science, but it's the reason uh, there's less typhoons. They never really tell you why. They say, oh, you're going to get less rainfall. Our models say less rainfall. Why? Oh, because it, there weren't as many typhoons on the boundary that, that affected it. So when you get into the why, that's where you run into trouble. Yeah, the model says this. Yeah, okay, but why? Well, if you, if you don't get less typhoons, you're not going to get less rainfall. So there's these contingencies that are... That's, that's the Achilles heel of it all. When they actually start to... They, they don't tell you the weather. Why did it do that? Hmm. You just say, well, our model says this. Speaking, <coughs> speaking of typhoons, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> are we out of the uh, threats of typhoons in the very near future? No. We're still going to get some? Well, yeah, our, our typhoon threat is actually maximized in November and December for Guam. 
Hmm. Well, we've had because some pretty big ones in December, that's the for The basin sure. reduces, but the ones that form are near us. Hmm. August, anywhere goes, Japan, Korea, Philippines. They can form anywhere, and usually not too many near us are going up. But once it's November, December, there's half of them, half of them out, but they're all out here forming their chew, and then we're, we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. I think about over half of our major typhoons are November. And <coughs> I know you're speaking about the El Nino. El Nino? El Nino, yeah. When does that start? Uh, it already happened. It's done. Oh, it's done. Yeah, in 2018. It's over. Hmm. So when El Nino's over, we get a drought, mm -hmm. uh, like we did. We had yeah. a drought this spring. And usually the typhoons are reduced after El Nino. This year should have been nothing. So far, it's been almost nothing. And we got a couple of little close calls there, but... They wound up being super typhoons. They were, but they didn't hit us. They moved no. on up to Japan. Correct. And the only residual, there's a little problem left over at the, the still warm ocean water kind of out east near the dateline. And typhoons like to form just where randomly or whatever the wa warm water happens to be. So if there's still warm water out there, we're looking at a late season possibility of spinning things up out around Point Bay. And if it does it there, then we're on the hook for it. It might miss. It might go south and get past the Philippines or it might go north like the one today up way up there. So Chip Gard and I got together. We decided we were going to tell everyone we're on the hook this year. Not like last year where it was El Nino and our typhoon U2 hit Saipan. Mm -hmm. and every other day there was another typhoon. Going correct, through. correct. But this year it's a little quiet. They're still mostly north and west and going to Japan and over there. But there's just this little sneaky problem where uh, we're, we're a little scared looking out. Ah, the water's still warm here. So we're not saying for sure. Just when I forget the numbers, Chip, Chip put out an official forecast from the weather office that it's not a, as quiet as it should be for the year after El Nino. year after El Nino, you should just, no typhoons, go to the beach. Nothing. The dishes, yeah, yeah, it's after El Nino, probably quiet, but there's a little flying element, a little tricky thing out there that's mm. still through December. Keep an eye out to our east. To our east and, yeah, and more and towards <coughs> south of Chuck. Well, in that general area, if it forms <coughs> in the Marshalls, westward to shoot that area, if you see some big formation and then it starts to pull together. Mm -hmm. And usually the, I like this, it's like a benchmark for me, 10-150, just southeast of Guam. If it get, that's where Omar was before it hit. If it gets to that little benchmark zone, that's kind of a scary place. Like the one now, how long? A couple few days, it was too far north. Yeah. It was like, it was like 15, went, oh, that's, that's a gunner, that guy's up. Yeah. Or if it flies past Guam and said only at six north passing mm. one away, low latitude. That goes through. So there's a little sweet spot you gotta kinda watch like uh oh this guy's mm. right now. Larry, does weather have any effect on your uh, agency? Uh yes it does. To um and to what extent and how? My revenue is down about three percent this year. And because everybody, of everybody said, why do you think your revenue is down? I uh -huh. said, from what I understand, it's been a drier year than a lot of years. Uh -huh. Because when it rains on garbage, it makes it heavier. True, oh. true. It gets wet. And there's not less people. There's not less tourism. There's not less other things. So I've got to look at something that is out of the ordinary that you generally don't think about. Uh, you know, mm. we're still servicing basically the same in the amount of homes. We're still getting pretty much the same volume of stuff. It's just not as heavy. And that's basically due to not being rained on. Hmm. Getting back to the <coughs> incinerator 
burst of power incineration and just incinerator. You said it's probably more expensive just with the incinerator? It, it would be less expensive, but you could have more opportunity to recoup your costs for permitting if you go with the power. Oh, okay, also. there you go, That's the permitting part. The permitting is what is run incineration almost out of business is just plain incineration. Hmm. But it, wouldn't it be dependent on the scale of the incinerator? Yes, but you're looking at a small island that's got a small amount of waste. You're not going to have a huge incinerator. It's going to be a small incinerator, and whether it's burning 80 tons a year or 60, 50, 40, it's going to have pretty much about the same costs in permitting. You're going to have oh, to do the same okay. studies. You're going to have to have the same types of things done. Hmm. Because, <clears throat> because of the fact that it can extend the life of the landfill, but I, I see your point. You know, I have the, uh, the cost is just not making it uh, feasible for for an island. Then that would be an, that would be a problem. Well, the thing is, your costs on an island are astronomical as it is. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the good thing about incineration to to power, you can utilize things like tires. You can utilize your plastic bottles. Instead of me paying a thousand dollars a ton to ship plastic bottles off this island, mm -hmm. I could pull the BTU value out of the petroleum-based products to generate electricity and get a beneficial use out of that used petroleum product. And the same with tires, which is a used petroleum product. They have an intense value for BTUs. There's a lot of BTUs in a tire. And that's what's going to generate your power, uh, your steam for to run your turbine to generate power in a waste energy plant. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. You know, um, I know, Larry, I brought it up to your attention. Uh, and I don't know. I think it's kind of too late now, but um, with I brought it up to a, another a friend of mine who's in the solar business, and I said, if you had. 600, 700 million dollars, which was the original cost of that, the new power plant. I don't, now you said it's two billion. That's factoring the fuel and all that stuff. But let's say 600, 700 million. So I brought it up to his attention. I said, if you had 600, 700 million dollars, could you retrofit and install solar panels in every single rooftop? He said, it's more than enough. More than enough. I said, wow. I said. Very interesting. I said, you mean you can put, again, this is minus some of your big apartment complexes because they don't got enough roof. Uh, roof. But that's was going with the idea that instead of using land, which we don't have a lot of, use the rooftops. And individual houses would have their own solar panels and batteries. And the batteries that they use now are called the Tesla batteries. And I said, well, you know, uh, how about during the, when it's not? He goes, if it's cloudy and it's not generating enough power, he goes, these new batteries, Dave, they have a mind, they're, they're like smart batteries. If the, um, if it's uh, overcast, cloudy, the uh, it triggers the system to generate the batteries even quicker, anticipating you'll be using it later that evening and at the same time because it's cloud cover you're not generating as much power so it automatically knows to we better generate these uh, power up 
and charge these batteries. But long story short, uh, it was an idea. I said, you know, because we're trying to go 35, 45% by this year and 100% within 2045 or whatever, I said, you know, we can fast track that if we, and then again, if we needed to build a low sulfur fuel generator or power plant, we can scale that down using the solars on every rooftop, which you said 600, 700 million is more than enough. So I said, we can fast track the whole going green thing a lot quicker doing it. He goes, yes. He's, uh, this particular individual said he brought it to the attention of the uh, the government, but uh, they decided we're going to go with this, what is it, 185, 195 megawatts with a $2 billion price tag over a 25-year period. Hopefully my daughter ain't going to be uh, spending an arm and a leg in the future, but uh, it is what it is. It's They signed the contract, so there we go. 38 minutes after 7, uh, we're going to take a short break. Jeremy, you got something to take care of us? We'll be right back right after this short break. Share the experience of cancer warriors, caregivers, and survivors living on Guam on Sorensen Media Group's My Story. Witness these powerful and emotional stories every first Monday of the month at 6.30 p.m. on ABC7 and the following Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. on Fox 6. Presented by Island Cancer Center, My Story is a Sorensen Media Group production. The American Association of University Women Guam Branch presents The Dish, a monthly program about issues affecting women and girls in our community. The Dish airs on K57 the last Saturday of the month from noon to 2 p.m. On The Dish, we'll talk about women's health, violence, ageism, workplace equality, financial security, and more. The Dish, serving food for thought on issues that are important to women. Brought to you by the AAUW Guam Branch on Newstalk K57. Buenas, Atanielos, Mamparentes, Manatongo. Guaho, si Robert Underwood, Tahu e Epocanzo. Ekungo, ki programata, isinota, winigi K57 na estacion. Hatsa ipuntomo, langmo si sinintemo, sanga ni pinitimo, interramente gifinota, isinotsamoro. Kada lunes, gialasaisi media gipopoengi. Put favor. Ifinota with Robert Underwood every Monday night at 6.30 on News Talk K57. Put a face to the names you hear on the radio with the K57 cam on Fox 6. You'll see the hosts and their in-studio guests talking about the hottest topics that affect all of us, nationally, regionally, and locally. Get PNC News updates live. Hit the streets mornings and afternoons in traffic with On The Go. It's the K57 cam on Fox 6. Brought to you by Guam Visitors Bureau, Guahan Insurance, and Guam Windward Memorial.
42 minutes after 7, welcome back Welcome back to Man, Land, and Sea with our guest, Dr. John Jensen, Dr. Mark Launder, Launder? Lander, Lander. <laughs> and Mr. Larry Gass, the easiest one to remember. Anyway, we're talking off the air. What are we going to talk about when we come back? And uh, let's talk about water conservation. How about that? Water conservation. You know, everybody needs to do their due diligence. You know, as you know, we got the dengue thing going around. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's another one. That's water conservation, not really the same topic. But I bring it up purposely because it's still an issue, and uh, we still didn't get rid of it yet. So uh, I want to remind everyone, all the listeners out there, businesses, business owners included, go around your house, go around your property, go around your business, look for any standing water, any containers that are holding water, and uh, you know, make sure that's not uh, going to be an issue in your in your area. You know, heaven forbid uh, one of your family members or anybody, for that matter, get uh, the dengue uh, virus in them. So the, the big problem with dengue mm -hmm. is that you're looking at something that only 25% of the population is exhibiting. Mm. So for every person that comes down with dengue, there's three walking around that are infected but don't have any symptoms. That's and true. That's that true. is what makes it such a hard disease to fight uh -huh. because there are so many hidden um, no, so population true. in there. So true. And I hear you know, the ones that you bring up a good point, Larry, that the ones that are walking around with no symptoms... Well, I don't know, not no symptoms, but I do understand from the professionals that the only time that the, the mosquitoes that transfer the disease, if a person that's infected with the dengue virus is during his period of infection where he has a fever, that is the time where he's contagious to, to actually the mosquito. The mosquito is just a carrier. So if, if a person doesn't have any signs or no fever, then I guess he's uh, walking. Well, they, they still can do that in the first couple of weeks of infection. Uh -huh. They can still have the ability to have it. They're just not showing any real symptoms. The mm -hmm. virus can still be populating in their body. Uh -huh. um, the best thing to do is not get bitten by a mosquito. True. Whether you're feeling healthy, whether you're feeling sick, doesn't matter. Just don't get bit by a mosquito. Hmm. That way you, there's no chance that that mosquito is going to provide a bite to somebody else. Oh, okay. But I understand well from what they told me. is that even if you're walking around, let's say you had the dengue virus for a week already. If you already went, if you don't have a fever, then you can't, uh, the mosquito, if it bites you, cannot transfer that virus to the next person because it's no longer, he can no longer the infected person, if he's not during that period of time that he has a fever, then he he's, he, he can't spread the, the disease. So they say. Uh, that's what the professionals told me, and I'm going with that. Anyway, with that said, we do have a caller, uh, Anthony. How for day? You want? Uh, you got a question about the landfill? Yeah, hey, um, <coughs> Dave. Yes, sir. Um, Lana, the, I, I'm dating myself, but no, um, I've had the opportunity through the years. I, I'm in my 60s now, but I've had the opportunity during the years to travel around, and then when I travel for my work, I also look at how they handle their, their, you know, their issues on social. So, ST landfill. No, my wife and I are in the Big Island of Hawaii, on the on the Hilo side, 
And we went into this restaurant, it's a local restaurant, and we were eating, and then I heard this guy say, hey, you're gonna go to, um, you're gonna watch the, uh, the races today? And I like to uh, watch races, so I said, where's the races gonna be? He says, over at the landfill. And they gave me directions thing. Uh-huh. And what they did is they, when the landfill was uh, maximized. Uh-huh. As it was capped? It was capped, and um, they had a drag strip there. Mm. And uh, <laughs> you know, um, things like that need to be done. But when, when they do planning for closing a landfill here, look at the one in Ordut. Uh-huh. It's a mountain. Yeah. I don't know if they, they can do mountain climbing over there like that, but <laughs> if, if they I... make a plan down at La Zone, uh-huh. Uh, once they cap it off, and they, they, they I know the the weight. I heard you guys talking about the weight. Yeah, that is um, a factor. There's not much weight when two cars are racing down the street, and and then it it contributes to a city social. Um, come and race your car here. Don't go race it on the on the road. Well, but the, the Anthony, that's a good question. What? I'm trying to get Larry to answer. What do you any possibilities for reusing that 50 acres for other purposes? One of the issues with a closed landfill is that it's generating methane. Okay. Now it's generally 30 years after it has been closed that it then opens up for uses for something else because it is out of that process of decomposition and producing okay. methane gas. Okay. If you're racing yeah. up there and somebody has a wreck and starts a little fire, you could cause the whole <laughs> hill to... But, but what I'm talking fire. about pre-planning yeah. No, if if uh, the planners think ahead and says, okay, the future for this landfill once it closes down is going to be a a raceway park, then don't put those kind of stuff that generates methane. Not like Ordut. I, I know the guy that's monitoring the the gas that's coming out of the hills there. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, it, it's all planning, right? And then of course the Ladon, they don't call it a dump anymore. They call it a landfill because they select what goes in there and what doesn't go in there and then so um, you know the the, um, i don't know if you want to call it civil engineering or no um, uh, planning uh, not planning just for tomorrow but planning for what else can we do after this thing is um is complete. Uh-huh. There's a, a Singapore, the size of Guam. They do all kinds. I don't know if you remember, Dave. You know, uh, more than ten years ago, this guy. I I I think he's a scientist, but he's tomorrow. He came over here, tried to introduce his plasma technology to um, to uh, you know incinerate stuff here. Uh-huh. And and. Um, no, he was rejected because nobody, not in my backyard kind of a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, if we can find that guy and bring him back over here, no, you know, they, you can take, um, I forget, the, I think the word they call it is slag. You take all this stuff and you, 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 know, you turn it into something that you use to pave roads or like that. When I, when, this, isn't, this isn't new to Guam. Uh, Guam is new to it. And here, um, we don't have to look too far. We just find out what are they doing in other um, other areas because they, you know we only got uh, 100, less than 200,000 people here. 
Singapore got something like 4 million people and they know how to handle it and um, other places no, but everybody wants to be I don't know the first one to come up with the, the best idea and you don't have to come up with the best idea just you know, check around see what everybody else is doing mm-hmm. and you know, the, talk about you know, and I, and I'm moving to a next subject but no, ST fuel peaks and uh, the aquifer. Yes, sir. There's also cats. There's also there's, there's, also, there's also homeless people. You know, those kind of people. They're they're the ones that con- uh, you know they're all contributing to the contamination of the water. So, yeah. Um, no. To a point, this, but this according is a social issue that no. It, it, uh, you know, I was listening to the radio earlier today. Everybody saying this and that and that and this, but no funding. <laughs> we, we need to have people that welcome to Guam. <laughs> no funding. Yeah, never mind about the no funding. No, and never mind about the good ideas. You know, let's get it going. Let's ask who can volunteer for this. I, I, I look at these. Uh, the Frank Gable was here, volunteered to do things. Those three ships came here. They volunteered to, to do things. They're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. No, Australia is doing it. They, in fact, they have. Um, if you go to a website, just look for volunteerism. Mm-hmm. The volume tourism. Yes, sir. There's a lot of people that like to uh, uh, go to different places, and they they volunteer their time to help. You no, know, the different you no, know, you know, uh, areas and. Uh, how come we don't have that here? We don't. Everybody doesn't want to volunteer. They just want to be paid, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, well, very. Um, I, I volunteer that, every weekend. No, but game. anyway, I, I got many other things to talk about, but I don't want to, you to think that I'm scatterbrained. No, so no, I'm, no. I'm going to let you guys go now. Thank you, thank you, Anthony. Uh, Anthony did bring up. Uh, uh, he, he, br- he brought up plasma arc technology, which uh-huh. is a form of incineration uh, that is new. It works very well on bench models, uh, small operations. There were two large-scale plasma arc technology incinerators that were being built in uh, England. There were two full-scale plasma arc incinerators that were built in Japan, all four of them had closed. Hmm. The two in England, they didn't even get the second one built before they scrapped it because the technology just would not work on a large scale. Hmm. And part of that is if you have a small scale, you can create a homogenized fuel source. If you're taking stuff in as quick as it comes in and burning it, you have to reset the calibration for that plasma burst to turn that organic matter into uh, hydrogen and carbon monoxide because then they take the hydrogen carbon monoxide and burn that through a generator and that's how they produce their electricity. Mm -hmm. And the ones in England that went bankrupt was actually, I think it was Air Gas Corporation and they were going to use the hydrogen as a gas source and they still weren't able to make it economically viable. Anthony did have a, another question that, that I found interesting. Um, 
And you mentioned that it usually takes about 30 years before the methane gas is no longer... No longer there. Right. So then, so what he's saying about using it for like a drag strip or something, that wouldn't be feasible for like 30 years? That would be 30 years after it's closed. Then he goes, but even with minus the recyclables, the tires and plastics and stuff, the stuff that is still put into the cells... Is it still producing methane? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what I think. Any any kind of organic matter, yes, that's what whether I it's paper, cardboard, uh, yeah, you know, food waste, yeah. um, anything. So, that so you're, basically, most Anthony, the stuff you're throwing away yeah. is going to create. So methane. there you go, Anthony. Basically, um, that idea of turning it into something like a, <laughs> a race drag strip or something, it still wouldn't work. And you did have, a, and, and you sparked my interest when you said, you know, dep doesn't it depend on what type of trash you're putting in there? I said, yeah, they're they're not definitely not putting the plastics in there. They're not putting the tires in there. But like Larry says, even everything else is in there. It's going to biodegrade and, and create methane. Well, that brings you right back around to what we were talking about earlier. Uh -huh. If it's incinerated first, the only thing you're putting in there is ash. ash it, yes. Ash is not going to break down into methane and carbon dioxide. Then that idea would work. And that idea would work. Yeah, yeah. How about the, uh, you know, the uh, not being stable, you know, it might... Well, the, the advantage of ash is it's compactable, almost identical to soil, and will set up and, and it would hold a, hmm. a stronger load on top of it. There you go, there you go. Okay, we're just about five minutes to the end of the show. And at this point in time, I'd like to thank you, Larry. Thank Mr. Larry Gass, Guam Solid Waste Authority, for coming into the studio. And Mr. Dr. Mark Launders. Launder? Launders. <laughs> Landers. I'm going to get it right. It just <laughs> Who was the one? Uh, Tony Lamarana was having a problem with the climate change, reliancy, or <laughs> he couldn't pronounce it. Anyway, and Dr. John Jensen, the easiest one to pronounce. <laughs> Thank you, John, for coming in, taking your time. My pleasure. I know it's a busy. You got you both got busy schedule. Dr. Landers, you were just in, like I said, a few hours ago. Yeah, and then I had two conferences this week: one typhoon workshop and an outrigger, the weary workshop, Visitani, and, uh -huh. and then a, a radio show, then a picnic at Epau Beach for the typhoon. I wow, you got a lot of energy, a lot of energy. Anyway, it's really a pleasure having all of you in the studio. We've, we've talked about a lot of different things and a lot of interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, did, I do say, you know, the show is at 6.30 to 8 p.m., and that's predominantly dinner time. But people are definitely out there. They're listening. And uh, it's just a matter of uh, we're going to let them educate them and enlighten them what's going on. In, in this case, uh, regarding the, uh, the water, uh, what's our situation with our water supply? And uh, it's looking good for Guam. We got one of the best aquifers in the world. We do. Yeah. And uh, you know the trash ditch, um, the uh, Legend Landfill is um, will be uh, breaking ground soon, right? Yes. But, so that's up and running. And uh, it's just a matter of uh, what we can do to uh, come up with some ideas and make things better for all of us here in Guam. You know, our environment is very fragile. And it's up to you, me, and the community to do what we can, and we can, collectively. We can make a difference, so keep that in mind. Three minutes till the top of the hour, actually two minutes still. And Jeremy, we're going to say good evening to everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Man, Land, and Sea. And we'll see you next week, Thursday, 6.30, 8 p.m. KGUM, again now.
Welcome to Man, Land, and Sea, brought to you by Guam Coastal Management Program and the Bureau of Statistics and Plans. We're going to have a good show today. We've got uh, three guests in the studio, Mr. Larry Gass, Guam Solid Waste Authority General Manager, uh, Dr. John Jensen with Weary Water Environment, Environment or Environmental? Environment. <laughs> environmental. Okay. There you go. And also Dr. Lander. And uh, he was on the show just uh, a couple hours ago. He was with uh, Tony Lamarena, and uh, Tony Lamarena had uh, some guests in his show as well. And it was all about the environment, which is really good. I like it. I like when they talk about the environment. And uh, Mr. Lamarena does so very often, and I really appreciate that, Tony. And today I brought in Dr. Uh, Dr. John Jensen uh, to talk uh, specifically on an article that was recently posted. Um, that was re- recently in the uh, the Post, the Guam Daily Post, and Dr. Jensen, what what was that? It was about diminishing water supply by 2028, something to that effect. Well, the uh, news coverage was about the um, publication of a report from a project that was sponsored by the Strategic Environmental Research and Development Program from the DOD. It was a cooperative project led by USGS, uh, Dr. Steve Gingrich from the then uh, at the uh, Pacific Islands Water Science Center led the project and I was one of the collaborators on it as, as the local expert on the aquifer. But it was an aquifer uh, modeling study in which we used uh, aquifer model that uh, Steve had uh, built as a previous project and applied it to these scenarios which were developed by another group uh, forecasting what the climate might be over the next century or so. Mm. And uh, Interesting. what they picked up on was a worst possible case scenario, and, and which sounds pretty scary, but it's... Uh, it's Caught my attention, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's not as bad as it uh, uh, sounds. Yes, please and elaborate. It, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll defer to my meteorologist colleague, uh, Dr. Lander, here to talk about the 
the uh, climatic scenarios and, and kind of put them in perspective with the natural variation and and then I, I can talk about the response of the aquifer but yeah if you if you reduce the recharge of the aquifer by 17 percent or 19 percent yeah you're going to have some some uh, um, noticeable impacts but but the question of whether it's going to be reduced by uh, 20 percent is is a meteorological question rather than a groundwater question. Hmm. Dr. Lander. Yeah, 20 percent loss of rainfall would mean we'd be like Saipan. Today hmm. we get 100, Saipan gets 80. Take away 20 percent, we're Saipan. Does that mean the possibility it will be uh, pumping up salt water? Uh, well, they they did it for another reason. They put all their wells in one little cluster and sucked all the water out, and the ocean came in. Hmm. It was mismanagement, not really the water use. Of it was water. terrible. I was I in Saipan, and it was terrible. Yeah, I, when I went there in the early days, you'd take a shower and come out smelling worse when you get out <laughs> when you went in. So I, I was shocked. Yeah. Uh, I went to Saipan as well for a conference. And and out like I couldn't even brush my teeth. I mean, yeah, the water was, was just nasty. Yeah. Self smelling, too. It, it was yuck. just terrible. Well, in, in fairness to them, they, they put in those wells back in the day when nobody knew what was going on underground. And mm. And a lot of it dates back to World War II when they just needed water and they didn't know uh, anything. Is, is that something that's said and done and there's nothing you can do about it now? Or is um, there something no, that... If you relocate the wells and, and uh, set them at a modest depth and pump them at a modest rate, there's plenty of water there for people. It's just there you go. They, if you're listening, Saipan, they, <laughs> they, they inherited a bunch of old wells that the uh, GIs put in in a hurry because they needed water for the Air Force sure. operations. And, and there's no knowledge, no maps, no, no geologic data. So they were just doing the best they could. They were probably, you know, farm boys from Kansas who, <laughs> who were doing their best to get water for the air. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think there's water there. Go ahead, drill. Yeah, they find water in one, then they drill 50 more in a square. Wow. Pretty much. So, uh, continue on. I'm sorry we interrupted you. Yeah, that's uh, rainfall look outlook, the 100 versus 80. Mm -hmm. It's really extreme, and they use the, um, the United Nations, uh, the, the climate change people, um, they, the last time they all met in the big plenary session, they did projections. And they determined, like, how much CO2, you know, they call them RCP, representative concentration pathways or something. And it's RCP 4.5, RCP 6, RCP 8.5. And RCP 8.5 is the worst. That means not only do we keep emitting, but we emit even more. It just keeps building and building and building all the way through to the year 2100. And they had to go to that scenario. And when they do, the, when they use that extreme case, the rainfall suddenly you get a lot less per year. Uh, you know, they maybe they run the models and they take a hundred years at that level of CO2, and oh my God, less rainfall. It's warmer. There's less rainfall, but it's a highly contingent thing because the reason there's less rainfall is what's really critical here. The reason there's less rainfall is because when you really warm up a global climate model, all of a sudden when it gets warm enough, you stop having typhoons. Mm -hmm. They don't stop altogether, but it reduces the typhoons. But at RCP 4.5, uh, the typhoons don't reduce very much. At 6, they still don't reduce very much. Suddenly when you get to 8.5, oh, well, now you're losing typhoons in a significant way. And that's the reason there's no rainfall. The only the typhoon rainfall quits, and that's the 15%. And I, I mentioned to Dr. Jensen, I said, you know, with this uh, study that uh, you were involved in, <coughs> It had nothing to do with the aquifer itself. Our aquifer is healthy. Yeah, we have a really uh, 
a good aquifer. Like yeah. say, if you were going to design an aquifer, you probably couldn't do any better mm. for reasons that I can elaborate on more later. But yeah. But our aquifer fills up fast, drains slowly, which is exactly what you'd want. And uh, so during the wet years, the lens gets thicker, and that gets us through the dry years uh, when the uh, rain stops. But the characteristic time of response for the lens is about five years or so. Hmm. Yeah, lots of water. Our aquifer is actually more amazing than anyone really. No, I we're blessed. Yeah. Like 700 feet of limestone filled with, well, the bottom portion of it filled with fresh water. Yeah. yeah. That's lots a, of it, and it's amazing. Yeah, our, our water lens is out of reach of the plants because the Vados zone is 200 to 500 and 600 feet thick. So the uh, plants can't get their roots down into our drinking water, water is six like, like they do in uh, places in the states where the uh, where it's only 30 feet or so down into the water table and you get uh, cottonwood trees or something, get the roots down in that and it takes a substantial part of your drinking water. Uh, the low islands um, uh, in Micronesia um, that have coconut trees with their roots, and it, the coconut trees can can suck their little water lens dry oh, during wow. a drought. And, and oh. we, once the water gets past the, the root zone up on the top, uh, it's it's home free. So we have a lot less evapotranspiration than we otherwise would out of our aquifer. So that's, that's just one of the good things about it. Hmm. Very interesting, uh, Larry. The um, the legend landfill I mentioned off the air. <coughs> You're going to be uh, starting up the. Uh, the construction of the new uh, cell. Yes, we will be, <coughs> we're actually in the process now of getting the construction started. Uh, again, this will be another uh, triple layered cell. It will be one synthetic layer, two feet of uh, clay compacted to uh, 10 to the negative six uh, permeability and then another synthetic layer on top of that to make sure that none of the leachate that's generated in the system uh, is able to leak into the ground. Yeah, and, and Dr. Jensa, there's not really any, or is there a aquifer in the pen area? Well, that's the reason it's down south, is so that it's no threat to mm. the aquifer. Good. Uh, it's the proper place to put it in, in those terms. Mm. Okay. Yep. We uh, hopefully will have this thing completed within about 500 days. Um, there's not much we can do during the rainy season because uh, we have to excavate holes and uh, dig trenches and lay pipes. And during the rainy season, the holes fill up so fast that you can't get much work done. So Before we started the show, it was surprise, surprisingly to me, when I thought, when I think about a, a, um, a cell for a landfill, I was thinking it was like hundreds of feet deep. And you said it was only like 15 feet? Correct. Wow. I, I thought, I, I was just totally blown away with that. Again, you know, I'm nowhere near an expert, so definitely I had the wrong idea. Well, even though we don't have an aquifer, we do have perched water that flows through the volcanic clays up in, well, down in the south part of the island. And you don't want to have competing pressures. The way the, the landfill is designed, 
you definitely want to try to keep it above any type of water that you'd have underneath or else you're putting an upward pressure against the bottom of your liner. And then when you put the weight on top, you're putting a downward pressure. So you're making your, your liner flex like this. Mm -hmm. And then that makes it a possibility for it to become weaker. So most of the time you want to keep it out of any type of water table that you have. Good idea, good idea. Uh, Dr. Landers, um, record it. We, we record rainfall, how much we get. And we get, I, I got this from your earlier show this afternoon. We get anywhere from what, 80 to 100 inches a year? Yeah, that's about right. Maybe uh, the driest, it's, it's surprising a little bit variable, about 15 inch difference. Hmm. It's dry on the East Coast, Minilao, where I'm at maybe 90, 95. The airport's about 95. Finnegan with stations 104, Southern Mountains maybe 110 to 115, wow. Anderson 98. So I mean, it's, hmm. it's near 100 plus or minus. What happens to the water in in, in the south if it if it permeates down to the ground? It doesn't get into the aquifer, does it? Well, the south has different geology. The north is covered by a limestone layer that okay. forms the plateau. Mm -hmm. The south is volcanic terrain that's uh, has surface watersheds, and so there there is. A bit of groundwater in there, but it's a classic uh, relationship between groundwater as, as base flow into rivers and the discharges in the in the rivers hmm. to, to take it to the ocean. So, oh, okay. but south of the Pago Adelaide Fault is a surface water province, and north of the fault is a groundwater province. Hmm. Uh, mm, I like to tell my students. Uh, Guam is the perfect living laboratory to study hydrology because we got both. We got groundwater in the north, we got surface water in the south. And, uh, so there's no wells at all in the south. Well, um, or there's or no could municipal wells. You could put a little domestic well on the flank of a river valley and draw out a few tens of gallons a minute to, su to sustain a household. Hmm. But nobody's ever done that because it's a lot more cost effective to yeah, I was just up gonna the say. WA. Yeah. Who, who, yeah. The South gets uh, uh, has the Ugum water uh, shed and the Fenno water shed. So the, the South is a surface water province and, and so you can uh, develop reservoirs there. but. Uh, but the um, economics uh, of it means that it's it's cheaper to to use the GWA system. So, in long story short, we're not in any dire situation as far as water so shortage in the next foreseeable future. No, not even right. No. Ah, good news. Because yeah, when when I first saw the article, yeah. I, it prompted me to call you right away. I said, <laughs> what? We're, like, we're going to have a diminishing well, water supply by well, 2080? Yeah, as, as uh, Mark was saying, that that's the worst case scenario. Yes. And it's 60 years from now. Mm -hmm. you know, who knows what the water uh, demand is going to be 60 years from now. We may have a whole different technologies. Yeah. Speaking of water demand, I, I know I mentioned it to you uh, during the first time you were on the show uh, a few months ago. The military buildup shouldn't have a, any major effect in our water supply. We've got plenty of water for them. Plenty. It's yeah. oh, good I news. Have, I have some numbers. The, sure. It's not a resource problem. It's a management problem. Okay. And I give it the amount of rain that falls on northern Guam 
is 700 million gallons a day. Wow. We take out 40 million gallons a day currently. Even if, even if that's 700 million, that's, but that's all of the north of Guam, everything. Up. Take away 20%, you're still talking about 600 million gallons a day. Just an enormous amount of available water. Where mm -hmm. you can go to Urinau or the Anderson or put collected as a problem. See, it's a, it's a collection and management problem, not a resource problem. We get so much rain that if we could collect it all, we could sell water to China and make a billion dollars. It, it does rain pretty much here. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> but we do, you know, speaking of that, it brings me to my ne next uh, question, uh, droughts. Um, you know, what history? How, what's the longest drought we've ever had? Well, usually it's... And when was the last one? The last was just this year, 2016, hmm. spring. Okay. We, we, went, we followed on, uh, not 2016, this year, 2019. Okay. 2018 was El Nino. So 2019, every time there's an El Nino, especially the big ones, you're very dry in the first half of the next year. So this year we were down maybe uh, 20 inches of rain over six months, which is fairly low. I mean, somebody from the mainland would think, that's a lot of rain. Yeah. No, for us it's a drought. So, I mean, we start having fires, uh, and John will tell you, that little amount, it doesn't make it into the aquifer because it's just so warm here when it, it just evaporates, it doesn't make it. So it sounds like a lot of rain, but that's, drought is a relative term. Um, I go to some Middle East countries, Oman, they say they get, they get four inches of rain a year. Yes, and yet <laughs> this date palms, the grass is green. There's all kinds of plants. This, even the old town of the city is verdant, and a lot of it's some of it. The, it rains in the mountains, and it gets into the water table. And they they do have some locally available water, and they desalinate. You go to the royal palace; they're they're, they're just flooding places with whole houses, just blasting. So, what do you do with all that? Well, we got oil money; we can afford this. <laughs> <laughs> and when I tell them, we. They say, uh, yeah, we well, we have drought. We we're worried about our water. I said, well, how much rain you get? I said, well, 100 inches of rain. They said, and it's going to dry up. How much are you going to get? I said, well, it might go down to 85. And they go, and you're worried about drought? You're worried about the water? We get four. I, I, <laughs> so realistically, even if it went down 20, 17%, we would still probably have enough water. As, as Mark says, it's a management problem. We're, we're used to getting 100 inches of rain, and we're adapted to technologies that supply our needs with 100 inches. If and 50% leaking. 50% hmm. of it leaks out, and we're happy with it because we still have enough. Wow. But, like he says, if, if it went down a little bit, we might find ourselves scrambling because our system is built to just throw away 50% and we're still fine. But, you know, hmm. but otherwise, it's not really... I brought it up to Vanjie. I, I think I... Did I bring... A I already forgot. Did I bring it up already about the uh, feral pigs and the contaminants and the nutrients that they, you know, their E. coli? Yeah. Is that something that, can, well, Vanjie, I think, answered it pretty well. She said, well, we pumped the water out and we chlorinated and we, you know, and we do testing for contaminants, so it shouldn't be an issue. But I said, you know, but it, up in the north, if, it, if it's getting into the water lens, I guess it still applies. They, they're going to filter it and chlorinate it. And, but, you know, I, I kept saying, because we have so many pigs and wild animals and outhouses, and what can we do to, to, to address that? They go, well, we need to get away from outhouses, number one, get away from uh, leaching pills and, and septic tanks and, and go with sewer systems, which automatically told me, Waterworks or the government's got to 
built more sewer, sewer um, pipe, piping, or whatever they call it. Well, in investing in uh, in good sewerage is, is smart. Mm -hmm. and, and we should encourage people to get hooked up to the sewer lines. Mm -hmm. But some uh, of them can't because there's no we sewer. Have to, we have to unfortunately, we have to live over our aquifer. Uh, yes. There are you know, communities in the uh, mainland where the uh, watershed is in the mountains next to the town, and they put a fence around it and, and keep people from moving into the watershed mm -hmm. and uh, manage it uh, exclusively for, as a water supply. Uh, we don't have that luxury here. We, we have a very good aquifer, but we have to live over the top of it. Now, the good news is that the first 20 to 60 feet of this uh, limestone terrain is deeply weathered, and it's been collecting soil for the two million years that it's been up out of the ocean. And uh, one of the interesting facts is that our, our soil here uh, is collected originally as dust particles from the local volcanoes and from the Gobi Desert. And uh, just like uh, Florida soil comes from the Sahara Desert. From the Gobi Desert? From the Gobi Desert. <laughs> and that's been verified be by soil scientists who uh, have found the mineralogical signature of, uh, th that's unique to the Gobi Desert in our soil. Interesting. And Very interesting. And, and so, um, the soil moves into uh, pockets and cavities that uh, are formed by the dissolution of the limestone as the water trickles through it. And, and, and it forms a, a layer that we, we call the epicarst, uh, like epiderm is the surface of your skin. The epicarst is the surface of the karst. And it happens to be uh, a medium that, that supports a lot of biological action. And um, so it's it's Mother Nature's biodegradation system for the stuff on top of it. And it's, it's a very good medium for keeping the aquifer clean because it, uh, uh, stuff biodegrades in the, in the first 20 to 60 feet, which means that uh, we, don't see, we don't see sewage often showing up directly in the uh, aquifer. What we do see is, is nitrate which is the final product of uh, the biogenic reduction. To finally <laughs> is get that a nice way of saying poo? <laughs> well, it's what's left over. But, and when we've seen nitrate concentrations increasing in the aquifer, but we're still below the maximum contaminant level in most places. Mm -hmm. but, but the and nitrate uh, has a certain risk, but, but but you don't see E. coli and stuff like the the nasty stuff in the uh, water lens, unless there's uh, typhoon and the uh, and a lift station fails and it goes into a ponding basin that's connected with a shaft that goes directly to the aquifer. So the aquifer is actually a, uh, has its own biodegradation system built in that protects us from. Uh, pig waste and that. If you had a, a, a slaughterhouse or, or a big feedlot or someplace where there was concentrated animal waste, we'd uh, we, we'd have something to worry about. But but pigs pooping hmm. on the ground, uh, okay, is, is not a not anything we need to worry about. Yeah, and 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 Banji did allude to the fact that there is a 
land use plan that addresses that. You know, they discourage um, um, building activities in certain prop, you know, certain mm -hmm. lands. Yeah. In 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 this case, the uh, over the aquifer. Yeah. So makes makes a lot of sense. You know, as long as we're all on top of it and be proactive about everything. You know, I'm all about proactive. Be mm. do what you can to prevent it. You don't want to be reactive because reactive just means there's a problem now. Mm. So we got to do something. Mm. So let's be proactive. Six minutes until the top of the hour. Um, for those of you out there in Radio Land, by all means, you got a question for our guests. By feel free to give us a call, whether it be about something to do about the weather. We got Dr. Landers here. Lander. Landers, that's it, only if he's Irish. <laughs> and we got Dr. John Jensen with uh, Weary and uh, Mr. Larry Gass. You got a question about the current uh, situation going on with our uh, new landfill? I mean, not landfill, the legend landfill, the uh, new cell that's going to be built at a cost of what, $30 million? $30 million. $30 million. And how long is that going to last us? About 12 years. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> That's best case scenario, probably. That's best case scenario. Okay. And, you know, we talked about this, Larry, you and I, off the air. We talk a lot. What do you, you know, how big, like the uh, the old landfill that's been covered up and capped and everything already? Correct. And that's, how big is that property? It's about 50 acres or so. 50 yeah. acres. And at this point in time, there's probably be because of it being a landfill, that's capped. I would assume there's not going to be any um, infrastructure going to be built on top of it. Well, one of the things buildings, etc. No buildings, nothing heavy, because anything like that is the materials underneath have decayed. There can be pockets. Anything heavy would cause a deflection in the top, and you mm. could you could lose the integrity of your cap, which keeps water from running through mm -hmm. it, running through the garbage and getting down into the groundwater. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I was going to look into is uh, utilizing the top of that because it's one of the highest areas in ORDOT. Uh, correct, correct. As you can see from Pacific yes. to Philippine Sea, Mount all Ordot. the way across with nothing blocking it is placing a solar farm on top of that. You know, and yeah, you mentioned it, and I thought that was a really good idea because of the fact we're trying to go green. You know, GPA just got into a new agreement with Korean-based company to build this new power plant. And within that plan, they there's things that they got to do to get to 35, 45, up to 100% renewable energy. And if that's in their plan, that that idea of using the property, the old uh, capped landfill, as a solar farm makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. You know, we don't have to use new property. We, we don't, we're a small, small island. We can't afford to. And, and that's one of the things that US EPA really encourages is the use of old landfills because generally once they're capped, they just sit there and they're of no benefit to society or residents or anything else. It's it's just a, a mountain of garbage that everybody stays away from. But by finding a productive use for it, US EPA encourages that kind of uh, action. Uh, ours is not a typical closed landfill. It's got very steep sides or it could have been turned into a park right now. You know, somebody would tumble 
uh, 80 feet if they fell down. And Not a good idea. But it would be great for putting solar cells on. Mm -hmm. We're about uh, three minutes to the top yard. We, get, we do have a caller on the line. We're going to take him before the news break, and uh, if he needs to talk a little longer, we'll just ask him to call back later. But Anthony, Alphaday, good evening. Yeah, hi, good evening. Um, I, I wanted to ask uh, your guest there, you know, in the south, you mentioned it was like surface water, but you know, what about those three sources of water that feeds into Pina, the Amagosu Springs, the Sadagago, and the, the Imeng, uh, Imeng Falls area, along that ridge there in the you know, Mount Lam Lam area? Uh -huh. I, it, is it, that's not surface water. That's coming. That's some kind of uh, pressure pushing the water from the top of the mountain going down into the lake. Can they pound on that? And uh, I'm going to get off now because I know you're. you're uh, if you can answer that. Okay. Sure. We'll we'll give it a shot uh, before we get to the news break. But uh, until then, we'll we'll get. To, who wants to tackle that question? Yeah. No, I, I can take that. That's a great observation and a real. Uh, Thank you, caller. Question. Um, the. Southern Mountains from Mandalief into Mount Lam Lam is a limestone cap on top of a volcanic uh, ridge. And that uh, limestone, the, what we call the Alephan limestone, is, uh, is the oldest limestone on Guam. And it's a great aquifer. And the water, tr water percolates down through that till it hits the volcanic rock underneath it. And then it comes out at the contact on those uh, springs. Uh, Almagosa Spring, Bonia Spring, Santa Rita Spring on the other side. Okay. All right, Dr. Jensen, hang on to that thought, and you can elaborate a little more when we come back from our news break. CBS News up next. Thank you for listening to Man, Land and Sea. We'll be right back.